about verse 13. Let me get to where we were. Oh, by the way, um, I forgot to mention this. We're going to have our discipleship training today. I need to change the time on this. If you are planning to come, okay, I have to bump it up 30 minutes because we have a chrysalis meeting this afternoon that I completely forgot about um, that I have to go and be a part of. Um, so anyway, we're going to be meeting today from 1 to 2. Okay, so from instead of 1.30 to 2, uh, we're going to do from, from 1 to 1.30. We're going to try to keep it from 1 to 1.30. Okay, it'll be a shorter time today. So if you want to be a part of that, then come today at 1 o'clock instead of 1.30. Okay, um, and then also too, I didn't have it up here, but we had um, kind of a preparation day for the back to school bash. So if you have not signed up yet to help out with that, we have a work day that's coming up in about a week or about a couple weeks or so. Um, there's a sign up sheet over here. Um, this is going to be a great opportunity for us to, to really have some good conversations with people in our community and help out as well. Now, we got to uh, chapter 4. We got down to about the verse 13. Can anybody remember what we were talking about last time? Kind of give us the context. We're not going to take the time to go back and read it all, but what's going on in this chapter in chapter 4? What's that? Nebuchadnezzar has another dream, right? Now, if you remember, in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, we're dealing with things, events that has happened in Daniel's life, primarily during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, right? Um, he had a dream in chapter 2, and we've already talked about that dream, where this image, he has this statue with this image in it, and it has all these different medals on it, and each medal represents what? A future world kingdom. Now, we're coming to... Another dream that he has in, uh, in chapter 4, and he's perplexed about this dream. And what does he see in the dream? Anybody remember? I've got the mic ready. Tree. Sees a big tree. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and just give it, to, give it to you guys and let y'all tell us. A big tree. A big okay, he tree. sees a big tree. Thank you. Thank you for that in-depth analysis. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> That's right. Big tree, a lot of animals. Okay. And what is this large tree supposed to represent? His kingdom. Okay. So it kind of makes sense. Oh, Augustine, you got a thought? Well, the tree gets cut down as the stump is left. That's right. That's where we are. Okay. So he sees a tree. It's full of birds and animals. And this tree represents King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, it represents not only the king, but also the kingdom. That kind of makes sense with the imagery, doesn't it? You can't have a king without... A kingdom, and you can't have a kingdom without a king, right? Okay, so let's back up and look at verse 10, and we're going to start reading right here. So these are the visions that I saw while I was lying in bed, and I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land, and its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. That's quite a tree, right? It's talking about Nebuchadnezzar, his glory, his grandeur, the, the extent of his kingdom, its greatness. It's talking about all these things. But here's what happens in verse 13. In the visions I saw... While lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger. Some of your translations will say a watcher. Coming down out of heaven, he called in a loud voice, 
Cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots be bound with iron and bronze. Let it remain on the ground and the grass of the field. Okay, now look at the next part of the verse. Let him be drenched. That tells you that this image is referring to a person, right? And I mentioned to you a couple weeks ago that when, when the Holy Spirit speaks using idioms and images, he's always consistent with those images. Later on, I'm going to show you a few more examples of how trees are used in the Bible often as an image of a person or a king or a ruler or as people. It happens all throughout the scriptures. I find that fascinating. But he says, let him, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal until seven times pass for him. That phrase, times, is referring to a period of years. Times, time, and a half a time is used twice in the book of Daniel. Time refers to a singular year. Times as a dual, that's two. Remember I told you last week, uh, what is a dual in Hebrew? It means two things. Do we have a dual in English? And I said, yes. I want to introduce you to all my friends, both of them. Right? Both of them. That's a dual. That, that's telling you I have a lot of friends, namely two. Okay? So times means two years, and half a time is half of what? Okay. He's going to have to deal with this for seven times. For how long? Seven years. Why is that important? The Holy Spirit has given you this, I think, because later on there's going to be some other prophecies where you're going to want to understand what time, times, and a half a time mean. We haven't got there quite yet. But the point that we're trying to make here with Nebuchadnezzar is God is placing a judgment on this man, a divine judgment on this man. He's going to take away his ability to think like a human being. He is literally going to give him the mind of an animal, and he's going to have to live this way out in the wilderness, out in the, the, the woods, if you will, like an animal, for seven years. Now, why is God doing this? To humble him. That's right. We talked about it last week. Nebuchadnezzar has a major, major problem with pride. And God is going to sovereignly show him who the ruler of the universe actually is. Let's keep going. Verse 17. And stop me along the way if there's any comments or questions or anything. Okay, sometimes I get to talking a little too much. And yes, see, like that. That's a great example. Thank you. I just find it interesting that there's a time limit to this. Yes. There's a time limit. Same way there was 70 years, there was a time limit for this punishment. That's right. Yeah, God has appointed times, doesn't he? What? Yes. So the decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the lying, excuse me, the living, well, that was wrong. So that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. Remember, he's been dealing with this ever since, since the book of, of chapter 2. Ever since that, you know, when he says, look, the gold is good, the head, but that's going to end at some point. There's going to be another one come after you. And then he creates that image of gold. And, and that's when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, everybody has to bow down to that thing, right? Because he has a problem accepting that he's just a man. 
Do we struggle with that? Sometimes we struggle with the fact that we're just human beings. We are not God. And he's struggling with the fact that his kingdom is going to come to an end. Sometimes we struggle with the same kind of thing. I've built my kingdom. I'm not going to let it go. Right? Yes. We, we don't stay in our lane. We don't stay in our lane. That's a very good way to put it. So, um, now, what's the point that he's trying to make? When it comes to rulers, when it comes to kings, when it comes to politicians, who is the one that's in control of all of these things? God is. Okay. Let's keep going. Verse 18. We'll start with 18 and go to 19. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, who's Belteshazzar? Yeah, Belshazzar. Don't mistake him with Belshazzar, which is going to be the ruler that's going to be reigning at the end of the Babylonian Empire when the handwriting on the wall takes place, right? We haven't got there yet. So, uh, Belteshazzar, this is Daniel, tell me what it means for none of the wise men in Babylon in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So, Daniel called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Now, why is Daniel perplexed? <laughs> why do you think he's perplexed? Huh? It's about him. Yeah, it's not, he likes. it's not because he doesn't understand the dream. It's because he does understand the dream, and he realizes that God is bringing judgment on the king, and here you are about to talk to a guy who makes it his routine to turn your house into a dunghill and cut off your head, right, and make you blind. So how do you approach a guy who's so arrogant and so temperamental and so full of himself with this news? He's perplexed. So Belteshazzar answered, My Lord, if only... The dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky. Your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, coming down out of heaven saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze and the grass of the field. While its roots remain in the ground, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation. Your majesty, and this is the, the decree of the Most High that he has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people, and you will live with the wild animals, and you will eat grass like an ox, and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven times will pass by you for you until what? Somebody say it. Until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to whoever he wishes. Now, verse 26 is hope. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when what happens? When you acknowledge that heaven rules. Okay. So the whole point of why God is doing all of this is because he's showing Nebuchadnezzar that he's in charge. 
not Nebuchadnezzar. And this isn't the first time that he's had to done this with a world ruler, has he? Does anybody remember what happened with Pharaoh in Egypt? You know, people debate all the time, well, you know, did, did Pharaoh harden his heart or did God harden his heart? And the answer is both. He took a ruler who was full of pride and he used that ruler who was full of pride to do his will even though he didn't want to do his will. How did he do it? Because he, he used his hard-heartedness. You realize that, that, that Pharaoh wouldn't have made it through 10 plagues had God not hardened his heart even more. Because the whole purpose of why God was doing that because, was because, again, he was showing the rulers and the world powers who is the one true God. Right? He's doing the same thing here. So verse 27. What did I do? There we go. Verse 27. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that your prosperity will continue. Now, I don't know, but to me, that, that tells me a little something about the kind of relationship that Daniel had with this man. It just, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it really, I sense a lot of respect here. I think that by this time, Daniel has earned Nebuchadnezzar's respect. I mean, after all, he's been second to the king for I don't know how long now. He's interpreted dreams in the past. He knows that Daniel's a man of integrity, a man of honor. And, and he speaks to the king in a way here that I can't imagine many people would. Okay? So how does Nebuchadnezzar respond? Let's talk about that here in just a moment. I want to talk about this idea of imagery with the Holy Spirit. I mentioned this a moment ago because it's interesting. You find this idiom of a tree used all throughout the scriptures. I could give you a couple examples. Many, many times. Psalm 1-3. Psalm 37, 35, Psalm 52, 8, Isaiah 56, 3, Jeremiah 17, 8. Don't worry about writing all those down. But many times throughout the scriptures, trees are used as a picture of a man. I could talk about how the Assyrian and the, the Assyrian kings and the Egyptian Pharaoh in Ezekiel chapter 31 are compared to a tree, cedars of Lebanon. They're compared to cedars of Lebanon. Um, think about another popular tree. Israel is also represented by a specific type of tree in the Bible. What is it? The olive tree. Okay, so it can represent a person. A tree can represent a nation. A tree can represent a people. And then um, Jesus also said the church. He said it's like a, what does he call it? A mustard seed, right? And it grows into a tree, right? So a tree is used all throughout the scriptures to represent people or groups of people. I just find that fascinating. What's that? A mesquite tree. That represents a Texan, a West Texan. And the Holy Spirit, right? Okay. Hey, but you know what? I kind of like that, you know, because, because I like the fact that if we use a mesquite tree for West Texans, y'all told me that mesquite trees drink a lot of water. And what, what does water represent? Come on, somebody. You like that? All right, both of you did good. Okay, so a year goes by. What does Nebuchadnezzar do with this information? When God gives you a warning, what are you supposed to do with it? Heed it. Does he? No. Well, I, I'm curious because a year goes by, so you wonder if he didn't at the beginning because it takes a whole 12 months yeah. before he 
comes up with the pride thing. So maybe he did for a year. Maybe he did. Maybe, maybe that's why God waited a year before the judgment came. Maybe you're right. Maybe it's kind of like what we do sometimes, right? You hear a good sermon. You know what? I think I'm going to change, <laughs> right? And then by Wednesday, you know what? I don't think I'm going to change, right? I'm going to go back to it, whatever. Maybe so. But here's the point. A year goes by. A year goes by for Nebuchadnezzar to think about all this stuff. A year of grace to change his heart, to change his mind. And what happens next? Look at verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, now listen to his words. Here he is. Just get the picture, right? He's, he's out there standing on top of the palace. He's enjoying the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the ancient wonders of the world. And he says, ah, is not this the great Babylon that I have built? As the royal residence, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Listen, buddy. <laughs> yes, ma'am, Pam. Conceited. That's a good word. That's a good word. Yes, he's, he's very proud of what he's done. And uh, notice the I statements. Jerry, where are you? Jerry's probably out patrolling. Jerry talks about in psychology the I statements, right? He's got a lot of I statements here. He's back in his pride again. And, and by the way, is this not a danger that you and I face? Yes, Let me tell you something. You know who struggles with pride the most in the church? Leaders. Right? Leaders do. People who stand up to lead. It happens all the time. Listen, how many leaders do you see in the Bible that God takes through a time of wilderness first before he calls them to lead? Almost every one of them that you find in the Bible. God takes them to a, through a time of testing, through a time of humbling. Why? Because if you're leading, you've got to be humble. You've got to lead from the bottom up, not from the top down. Jesus said, do not lord it over them like the Gentiles do. Right? You have to serve with a towel and a bowl. And that's really hard because when you're a leader, sometimes your ego becomes the problem. And by the way, it really was a problem. I want to read this to you. This was a Babylonian inscription that was found in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. Okay, this was found by Sir Austin Henry Layard. I wish I had a picture of it. I don't have one, but I want to read this to you. This was, this was written in um, cuneiform, translated, and it, this is Nebuchadnezzar himself talking. This is not in the Bible. This is in history and archaeology. Here's what he says. I, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, I am the son of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, I who erected the Ezeta temple, I who built the procession street, I who built the street of the forgiven son, I who built the street of Nebu and paved it with shimmering stones. Nebu, you the divine minister, grant me immortality. Do you see what he was doing? How did you, how did you seek immortality from the gods in ancient times? By all the things you've done. So he's doing all these things because he's hoping that by doing all this good stuff and blessing his kingdom and, and getting all this credit, that maybe that God will grant him immortality. You still don't know for sure. You know, my granny, my granny was a wise woman. She raised me, for those of you who don't know. My great-grandmama took me in when she was 65 years old. God bless her. And she used to always tell me, she says, you know what? Pride comes before what? Comes before destruction. That's a different translation over there. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 16, verse 8. 
One of the most dangerous times in life, in your life, is when things are going well. Because when things are going well, oftentimes we get complacent and lazy. Um, Our mistakes oftentimes become our lessons. Our pains become our credentials. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19 says this. There are six things that the Lord hates, and there are seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devised wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5 says this, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Um, Proverbs 26, verse 12, Do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs 29, 23, Pride brings a person low, but the lowly in spirit is the one that gains honor. How about this one? 1 Corinthians 4, 6 through 7. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, don't go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of the one of, one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone, anybody else? What do you have that you didn't receive from God? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? I'm not going to read a whole bunch more of these, but I think you get the idea. Um, Why does God hate pride so much? The last one that I read, it was 1 Corinthians 4, 6 and 7, 6 through 7. There you go. Why does God hate pride so much? I think one of the reasons is because of Satan's fall. It was pride in his heart. It was that original sin. You want to talk about original sin? The original sin was when the the anointed cherub who covereth, to use the old King James, the one that was in charge of the worship of heaven, looked at the majesty of God and said, I can be that. I want that. I want people to worship me. See, that's the root of pride. That's where it all goes back to. I think that's one of the reasons why he hates it so much. So verse 29 Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Look at verse 31. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven and said, This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You'll be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on the earth and gives them to anyone that he wishes. Okay, so a year has gone by and at least by this time he's forgotten about everything that God had warned him about a year earlier. And now he's going to have to learn the hard way. Sometimes we got to learn the hard way, don't we? I'll tell you something that really has been weighing on my heart this week. You've heard me many times talk to you about my mentor. Um, I have, have had several mentors. 
But a lot of my mentors lately have been falling. Um, good, good friend of mine, uh, 20-something years of sobriety from crack cocaine, um, fell this week. The, man, the, the one that taught me 95-5 time. And, and why do I, I say that this morning? I, I say that this morning because we have to remember the things that God calls us to do. We have to stay on top of it every single day. Uh, we, we think about what, what he's saying right here. Think about this, this warning. Sometimes you have to learn the hard way, right? It, it, it's like that mentor that I just told you about. He used to say this to me all the time. He says, people come to God in one of two ways either through humility or through pain. And the problem is most of us aren't humble. So sometimes God has to allow what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. And that means letting you fall down on your face, right? So that you can come to the realization that there is no God but him and there's no other way but his way. Okay, so here's what happens. Verse 33 I got something to say. Yeah, please, go ahead. Sometimes God loves us too much to let us continue sinning. Exactly. He loves us too much, but he's doing it out of love, not out of punishment necessarily, although it looks like punishment. It feels like punishment. That's right. But it's only because he loves us. He disciplines those he loves. That's right. And he, he will not tolerate it. Um, yeah, that's voice of experience. <clears throat> so what, what he's about to go through, this seven years of having to live like an animal, let me ask you a question. Is this judgment or is this grace from God? Yes. <laughs> he said yes. It's both, isn't it? God didn't have to mess with this dude. <laughs> he could have said, you know what, Nebuchadnezzar, Wah-pah! you're gone. Here's another one. He's showing grace to him. Why? Yes. Yes, of course, in that sense, everybody's God's servant, right? Pharaoh's God's servant. But in here, he is God's servant because of what's going to happen later. He's going to change. Yes. That's right, not yet. He's about to. He's about to find out, isn't he? I think in Acts 12 and 20, Herod, God did just zap him. That's right. His pride. But here, he gives Nebuchadnezzar another chance. I think so. And, I, and why do you think that is? I think it's because he knows Nebuchadnezzar is going in the right direction. He knows that he can get him in the right direction. Herod, that's a whole different story. Herod, that's a different story. Okay, Tim, where are we at? Tim. First, Huh? Yeah. Maybe God knows Nebuchadnezzar's heart better than Nebuchadnezzar knows his own heart. Ooh. Okay, that'll preach. Verse 33. So immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle. And his nails looked like the claws of a bird. So this guy looked rough, right? Could you imagine living outside for seven years and being like an animal? Dude, looked rough, okay? Now, I'm not, this is tradition, but according to the Jews, if you, if you ask the Jews, um, the Babylonian Talmud, which is, was written after the time of the 70-year captivity, there's a tradition that Daniel was the one that took care of Nebuchadnezzar all those seven years. Now, I don't know, I can't verify that, but I could see that happening. Now, at the end of that time, so now we've moved forward seven years. Now you're going to see the other side of this. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, who's writing this now? Nebuchadnezzar is writing this. This is his testimony. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, 
I honored and glorified him who, who lives forever. Did you notice? He didn't use any accolades this time, did he? None. I'm the one who built this. I'm the magic. He didn't use none of that language. Does he sound more humble now? Okay. What does he say about God? His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. It is here where I believe Nebuchadnezzar is genuinely repenting. Listen, let me tell you something. It would not surprise me if one day when we pass from this life and go from this life to the next that we don't find that he's a brother in Christ one day. Possibly. I don't know. Okay, verse 35. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. This is Nebuchadnezzar still talking. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor was returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. What do you think about that? He sure did, didn't he? He came to his senses. Now, this is the very last that we're going to read about Nebuchadnezzar. After his restoration, we know from history that he uh, reigned about uh, one more year, and then he dies. So God gives him grace after this about one more year, and he passes away. His son, Evil Morodok, um, takes the throne at that time. He'll be the next ruler. Evil Morodok is mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 9, by the way. Um, and then right after this, this is right around the time that his empire starts to decline. There's going to be several little rulers that will take place. Eventually, um, Belshazzar will take the throne. Belshazzar is a playboy. He could care less about actually ruling. He's just enjoying his, his time there. His daddy is down in Saudi Arabia, living it up. And that's when the handwriting on the wall takes place. Now, before we close and before that bell hits, I want to share something with you that I thought found really interesting. There was a... Um, Everybody's heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls before, obviously, right? The Dead Sea Scrolls. There was a, um, a scroll, a partial piece of a scroll that was found in cave number four in Qumran when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, and it's called the Prayer of Nabonidus. It's a prayer that was passed down among the Jews from the time that they were in Babylonian captivity. It's the only place we know where this prayer was preserved. And it's interesting. It's called the Prayer of Nabopolassar, which was Nebuchadnezzar's dad, right? But when you read the prayer, it's going to sound an awful lot like Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> now, here's why I think it's going on. I think the prayer of Nabopolassar is actually the prayer of Nebuchadnezzar. Because Nebuchadnezzar and Nabopolassar, in their language, in ancient Babylonian, has four letters, and three of those four appearing both names. There's only one letter difference. So if you have a scribal error, it'd be really easy to do. Does that make sense? Not a big deal, but let me read this to you. This is fascinating. Here's the prayer. See if this sounds familiar. The words of the prayer that Nabonidus, I'm going to say Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Assyria and Babylon, the great king, prayed when he was smitten with a malignant disease by the decree of the Most High God in the city of Timah. I was smitten for seven years. Who's that? So you see why I think this is not the prayer of Nabopolassar? I think it's the prayer of Nebuchadnezzar. 
I was smitten for seven years, and from men I was put away. But when I confessed my sins and faults, he, that is God, allowed me to have a soothsayer. Now, don't let that throw you. It's using that term, magi, soothsayer. That's what Daniel was. That's, that was his classification, if you will. This was a Jewish man, man of the exiles in Babylon. He explained it and wrote, me, wrote to me to render honor and great glory to the name of the Most High God. Isn't that fascinating? From history. Okay, we're going to stop there. I'm not going to take the time to, uh, to go back through all the, the chronology. I think we're, we're kind of done with that. Um, so here's what's happening. If you look up on the screen, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 all go together. Um, they are all about Nebuchadnezzar. Now, here's the part that most people don't realize. We've mentioned this before, but we don't hear from Daniel again for 63 years after this. Okay? Long period of silence. You don't hear for 63 years. And then the next three chapters all have to do with Belshazzar. Okay? Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, 63 years later. Okay? Now, if you